talking this morning a bit about what it is to be a Christian and, and, and really bringing the gift of being a Christian to your community, to your circles of influence this Christmas season. It seems that our world, particularly our nation right now, um, just a microcosm of the world in general, is so caught up in, in, in polarizing and separating and, and, and hostility. It seems that antagonism is the normal for our culture. People identify themselves by what they're against or what they're not. Finding dichotomies and ways to separate ourselves into fine-tuned uh, little hyphenated identities. And in doing so, we've created a culture that seems ready at every moment to argue. Ready at every moment to say, why I'm not like you, why I'm against them, I'm against them, I'm against them, I'm against them. It seems like that's become typical, common, and even, let's say, expected of Americans today. I don't think this is a good development in our country. I don't think this is a good way for us as people to see ourselves. What's made America great over all these years has been the fact that there's a unity amidst our diversity. We became a melting pot as a nation, not a mixing pot, not a group of people who are continually looking to figure out how we can be against, but how we can be one. And this is something that is typical uh, of the Christian identity. You see, one of the beautiful things about America is that it, in its beginnings, in its early days, our founding fathers and the people who came here were seeking to build a nation that looked like the kingdom of heaven. And while all of our founding fathers and founders were imperfect people who had flaws, and while for sure as a nation we have embraced some things that are inconsistent with the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, as a whole, America has identified as a Christian nation with our values based upon what Jesus taught. Therefore, I would encourage during the Christmas season that we as a people, particularly as a church, would find our, our identity in Christ and the unity that we find there. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So the idea is that for Christmas, what we want to give as a gift to our community, to our families, to our circles of influence, is the gift of being genuinely Christians during the Christmas season. Not just as, as New Year's resolutions that will be more Christian, but all through this season, we really begin to typify what it is to be a Jesus follower. So let's look at what that might specifically mean. First of all, we say throughout the course of this season, peace and goodwill. When the angels appeared in the skies over Bethlehem and they gathered over those shepherds, those lowly, lower-end, bottom-of-society shepherds, what those angels said to them was, peace, peace, goodwill to all men. Don't be afraid. This was their great message, that Christ has come, the Messiah has arrived, a king, a child has been born to you, and he will be Emmanuel, and peace and goodwill. This is the radiated uh, message that came from those angels and that radiated from the early church. So what I would like to encourage us during the season is to in incorporate, uh, to embrace really four distinct things. First of all, be lavishly loving during the season. Secondly, be uniquely gracious. Nextly, be profoundly peaceful, and then fastidiously forgiving. I tried to alliterate as close as I can, but I couldn't really come up with anything for gracious, so, you know, I'm not a good Baptist anymore. I apologize. Scripture uh, reads exactly like this. The words of Jesus in John chapter 13 says, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we are thinking about, about the uh, message and the teaching of Jesus, we would remember that uh, Jesus was, in fact, Jewish. He was one of God's chosen nation, and that's how he came to that chosen people. And one of the things that uh, Jesus had, had responded in the form of a question had been asked, and he responded, somebody said, what is the greatest of the commandments? A Pharisee, a Sadducee, who knows, a member of the Sanhedrin, they were looking for an opportunity to trip Jesus up and say that one commandment is better than all the others. And, and therefore, if Jesus said one command is the others, then the other commandments would be lesser. And therefore, they could say, ah, oh, see, you're saying some of the law is less than the others and you're not God. And so they were looking for a way to cause a problem for Jesus. So they said, hey, teacher, rabbi, what's the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus brilliantly looked to him and said what we would call the Shema. They did too. Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And Jesus said, and a new command I give to you, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this rests all of the law and the prophets. What were they going to say to that? How can you argue now? Can you push back and say, see, I told you, he's, he's perfect, dang it. There's just nothing they can do to get back at Jesus at this moment. But what he had said was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And upon this, all loss and all good behavior and all truth rests. If that's true, then, and if it comes out of the mouth of Jesus, the Messiah, the creator of all things, the word which was from the beginning and is today and through which all was made, if that's his message, love God and love one another. And if our church, by the way, is all about creating disciples that help transform our community by loving God and loving others, if that's who we are, if that's who God tells us to be, then I believe during the Christmas season, more, time, more than at any other time of year, we need to be a people who demonstrate love in our relationships and the way that we interact with one another. Um, the next one talks about being uniquely gracious. Oops, come on, slide. There we go. For the great, this is from Titus. Paul, by the way, is talking to Pastor Titus. Pastor, let me back you up and give you a little bit of <laughs> preface because I think it matters. Titus was somebody that was being sent to form and build churches. And Paul, who was an apostle, was sending out Titus, who's not an apostle, he's a pastor, uh, to go to the, to the island of Crete. And on that island, a whole culture, a whole national culture, Paul is telling him, Titus, go select elders, plant churches, build on this island uh, the kingdom of God. And he said, um, he said this to Titus as part of his instructions. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation um, to all for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous about good works. Paul was telling Titus, listen, you are to teach and to preach and to build a community of people who are unique from the world around them. 
We know about Crete. We know it was a place of lawlessness. We know it was that it did not practice self-control. Lasciviousness is a good biblical word for this. But they were a people who were indulgent, a people who were cruel and dishonest, an island nation who was known for the fact that they were impure, unworthy to be trusted, uh, and they were a people who were deeply self-centered. They were liars. They were thieves. They were cheats. They were scoundrels. And what Paul was saying is, Titus, plant a place of people who are uniquely gracious in the midst of that culture that they stand out. A little further, um, uh, in Romans eleven six, Paul says this to the people there in Rome, but if, speaking of salvation and justification, is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you could earn God's favor, if you could be so good and you would be better than everybody else because of, your, because of your behavior, it wouldn't be the grace of God that distinguishes you anymore. James, um, the great, the great uh, leader of the church there in Jerusalem, brother of Jesus, said this, but he, Jesus, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If we are a gracious people, here's what it's going to mean. We recognize, oops, who we really are before God. We recognize that we are as a people flawed and imperfect. Now, that's you too. That's me. Flawed and imperfect. If we look across our lives and we can see ourselves the way God sees us, looking down and knowing the soul and knowing the heart, would you agree with me that God would find things in our lives that would make us unworthy to be loved by Him? In other words, Romans tells us, Romans 3, 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we as people have sinned and become imperfect, then therefore God does not owe us a relationship. Adam and Eve before the fall were perfect, and therefore they had no sin, and God walked with them, and they spent time um, in the presence of God. But since then, sin entered the world, and each and every one of us has, at some level, become a failure against perfection. Now, that's an indictment, but it's the grace of God, grace, that He looks at the imperfect and says, and I love you anyway. And in that is a message for the Christmas season. Each one of us encounters and engages with people around us who are imperfect at some level. Would you agree? Okay. How about yourself? Do you deserve grace? I mean, what's absolute justice look like? Absolute justice says every sin is punished. Anybody who does wrong is called out uh, and punished for the wrong that they have done. Grace says we look at each other and we extend forgiveness and love regardless of where somebody is on this level or, or slate or scale of perfection. Grace says that I love you because Christ first loved me and because God's riches, which is forgiveness at Christ's expense, has been given to me, then I owe that to everyone else, which means during this time, during this season, we give more grace to everyone else than we may normally give in an exact proportion to what we would want to receive. Somebody cuts us off in traffic. Is it yelling and screaming and defining your rights and going after them to let them know, how dare you, and, and take your space back? No, and not that that happens in Sturgeon Bay all that often, but uh, we were down in Green Bay the other day and I saw it. 
I believe it's so very important that during this time of year, we offer forgiveness and friendship and inclusion and love in ways that are unusual in our society during this time. That we are gentle people who are willing to give up a space in line or, or help somebody who needs a hand or help somebody load. The, I did this the other day. A lady was out by her car. This is at Walmart. And she was trying to load all of, her, all of her groceries and she was at least 400 years old and there was no way she was going to keep the cart where it belongs and not fall and try to get everything in her car. And it looked like she was shopping for herself and the grandkids and the great-grandkids and the neighbors and just huge load in her cart. And I thought, why, why on earth is nobody helping the lady? So I stopped to help her and and she wasn't a friendly lady. I understand why she didn't have a lot of folks helping her. But we, we put the things in, in the back of her car and everything. And I said, you want me to put your cart away? Uh-huh. Okay. So I put her cart away and just kind of chuckle like, wow, it's, that's too bad that she would, would be cranky at Christmas. But I imagine, I imagine, um, I've been cranky at some point in time. Jamie, have I ever been cranky in the office? I mean, has that ever happened? No, she says right. And so would you imagine that in each one of our own lives, there's times when we need forgiveness and a little extra grace from folks and just the chance to go, oh, well, I guess she's having a bad day. Well, I like her anyway, whatever. Um, oh, I guess he's having a hard day. Oh, maybe it's a tough season. But extending grace and optimism to people, if we were to do that, during the course of this Christmas season and the year ahead of us. I really believe it's going to speak to the unique graciousness of God's people and help live out the Bible and live out the gospel for the people who surround us. But how about peace? What if God's people, uh, the children of Jesus, are profoundly peaceful in our society? Let's look at a few scriptures that speak to this idea of peace. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God and daughters, lady. If we get to be called the bride of Christ, you can be the son of God. You'll be okay. Romans 8, 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Hebrews 12, 4, Strive for peace with everyone and let the holiness without which there is no one uh, will see the Lord. Let peace Peace, James 3.18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. John 14.27, peace I leave with you, my peace which I give to you. Not as the world gives, uh, the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being a people of peace means that our first reaction is not my rights or justice or getting even, but that it's peace. People will know you're the children of God, the sons of God, because peace defines us. Wouldn't it be great if there was a bit more peace in the world around us? If we analyze our own lives right now, looking around at our relationships and the way that we interact with others, would it be fair to say that in most of our lives, there's somebody with whom we are not at peace? Would you agree? Would you agree that if we look around our neighborhood or our, our work relationships, our personal, even our family relationships, that there are places where more peace would be welcome? Let it begin in you. Let that peace be something that radiates, that begins in, is initiated by you. Peace sometimes means needing to say, hey, I'm sorry. This tension that we've been experiencing is, is because I haven't been forgiving or 
I have been ungracious or I as a person have not allowed peace to be what defines me. I need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. Whatever this means, ladies and gentlemen, God's people need to be a people of peace. If we are at peace with God, even though we perpetually and continually sin against Him, don't you think it's worth extending peace to those around us? Fair enough? This should be defining us as people profoundly peaceful, not looking for antagonism or a fight or an argument, but always looking for ways to be at peace. And what that really comes down to is that sometimes, here's the word, we have to defer to other people. Rather than seeking our rights and having my way, we need to defer to the wants or the rights of others. And if Christians are known for that, if Christians are continually looking for how we can defer to one another, what happens is peace. That's the natural posture of a Jesus follower, a person of peace. So lavishingly love, graciously, or uniquely gracious, and then uh, profoundly peaceful as persons. These are what define Christians. Matter of fact, can I, do we have a minute? Can I take you to the Old Testament for something? I was reading through this in my own uh, devotions over the course of this week, and, and this verse had, uh, had jumped out to me. Now, this is from a translator's Bible. Don't, don't try to follow in your own. You'll just be frustrated. Um, this is in the book of Jeremiah. Scripture is frequently referred to as God's words in human voice. Have you heard that before? It's not wrong. It's a really good way to look at it. God's words, the human voice. Um, however, sometimes we have to acknowledge the fact that um, God inspired the prophets. And this really is an inspired person speaking truth because of what God had given them. Uh, and Jeremiah is uniquely poetic, okay? Uh, Isaiah too. I'm not, I'm not ripping at Isaiah, and I'm not ripping at Deborah's beautiful Hebraic, Hebraic parallelism and all that kind of good stuff. But Jeremiah, uh, in particular, I'm enjoying reading just because of the fact he's he's poetic, not not warm and fuzzy. <laughs> uh, when you read Jeremiah, he's he's a, he's an imprecatory prophet, which means that he's calling people to accountability. And in this particular passage, I was thinking about peace. And I was thinking about how do I speak to the church about um, what it is to be honest in our relationship with God so we can be honest and peaceful in our relationship with one another. And this is what Jeremiah um, was, was saying in his conversation with the Lord. This is from the third chapter of Jeremiah. This is before they're going to be uh, um, called into captivity. And it reads a whole lot like this. Um, you, Israel, have given yourself as a prostitute to many lovers. So what makes you think that you can return to me, your God? Look up to the hilltops and consider this. You have prostituted yourself with every God on every one of those hills. You waited for those gods like a thief lying in the desert. You defiled your land with your wicked worship of other gods. That's why the rain is withheld and the springs have gone dry. Yet in spite of this, you are obstinate. You refuse to be ashamed of what you have done. Even now you say to me, you are my father. You have been my faithful companion ever since I was young. You won't be angry with me now, will you? You will not be mad at me forever now, will you? The people of Israel, for whatever reason, just were blind to the fact that their lifestyles and their sins had alienated them from their God, and their God was going to judge them for it. And they would say things like, well, but you're our God and you love us. We bear your name. You're not going to be angry with us, are you? It's almost like a cheating spouse who would say, you know I still love you the most though, right? Come on, come on, what's the matter with you? What are you doing? 
And when we as the people of Jesus, as his church, you, you hear Jeremiah's sarcasm, right? You hear that? It's not Shannon's. I'm, I'm reading. He's a lot more poetic than I am, and, and he's angry. But, but do you, do, I want you to think about this. If we as the people of Jesus Christ have hate and anger and bitterness that are defining us, and if we, like that very first slide we looked at, if we're the kind of people who are defined by our antagonism and our hostility and our hyphenated identities, if that's what we're doing, don't you understand that in that scenario, in that posture, the peace of God is not what is profoundly radiating from us? And if we, we live that life of, of identity that comes from things other than Jesus, and then we look to Him and go, but God loves me, Jesus is still my Lord, are we not doing exactly like Israel of the Old Testament? Are we not being cheaters? Are we not unfaithful spouses? Are we not, as Jeremiah says, prostitutes? You're supposed to be a people of peace and love because that's what you've received from your God. What is it then that you're living out in the world around you? I think that's an important message at Christmas time. If grace and peace are the message of Jesus to His church, shouldn't that be the message of the church to the world around us? Peaceful. And if we're going to call Him Lord, if we're going to lift up and praise His name at Christmas, then we need to be people who are living consistent with the behavior of Jesus, even if the people around us aren't living that way towards us. So what's that really culminate in? The hard part. God's people are to be fastidiously forgiving. Ugh. All right, preacher, I was cool with the peace, I was cool with the grace, but now here comes this whole forgiving thing. They owe me, they're wrong, I was right, let me tell you the story of it that I'm the hero in. And this is how we always want to do it, isn't it? No, cheating spouses, no. This is the point where our responsibility is to forgive, let grudges go, and quit telling the story that you're the hero in. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, mic drop. There it is. At that point in time, there's really nothing else to say, is there? Has anybody besides me struggled with forgiveness in your life? Has anybody else had to come to a point where you realize, all right, this is a gift I'm going to give myself. I'm just going to forgive and move on. Listen, bitterness that Paul is speaking of to the church there in Ephesus was as common to them as it is to us. Has it ever occurred to you? And I hope it has because I say it a lot and hopefully you listen from time to time. Has it ever occurred to you that the people of Jesus' day were just as savvy as you and I? You take away the cars and the computers and the electricity and they're just like us. They're just as smart as we are. They're just as nuanced, just as wise, just as culturally astute as we Americans are today. They're just like us. Their brains work the same, their bodies look the same, they dress differently and speak a different language, and they don't have some of our tech. But let's get honest, they're just like us. But they're more refined in some ways, because instead of using media and social media and telephone and technology, they were much more attuned to personal relationship and nuances. So they're a little sharper than us in some ways. And in their culture, people, 
people in their day, they still did each other wrong. They were still malicious sometimes. They still cheated each other from time to time. There were still cliques, and there were still social status differences, and there were, uh, they're just like us, just like us. So putting away things like boasting and malice and slander and anger, all these things that come from us being the hero in our own story has to go away. It had to go away for the people of Ephesus, probably one of the most savvy cities of that day. And it has to go away from us. Have you been wronged? Let it go. Has somebody owed you? Forgive them. You just have to forgive and move on. If you don't, here's what happens. You will bear the physical ramifications of the bitterness and the anger and the wrath and the clamoring and the bitterness that you hold will take its toll on you. You'll become tired, you'll become angry, you'll become argumentative, you'll become bitter. It can affect you with with anxiety, it can affect you with great weight gain, it can affect you uh, with with loss of hair or, or illness or sickness. All these things will manifest in this temple that you walk around in. So give yourself a gift as you give the people around you a gift. Forgive, even before they ask for it, just let it go. Unload it, and here's what I can promise you. They're still going to do your own. Neat, huh? They're probably not going to come to you and say, Gary, I'm so sorry I was wrong, which gives Gary the chance to go, darn right you were. As a matter of fact, I got a list of other things you did. No, no. What Gary's going to do is he's going to say, I forgave you a long time ago. Listen, Jesus forgave me for far worse than you've done to this person. So consider yourself forgiven. Hey, I love you. Let's just move on from there. Maybe there's some things we've learned we need to talk about sometime, but right now, let's just call it forgiven. What a great gift to give and to receive. A little further, um, Paul continues to talk about that, or the Scripture continues to talk about this in 1 John. Um, one slide, there we go, one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the gift God gave us, forgiveness. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord Jesus forgave you, so you must also forgive. Listen, forgiving is Christian. It's what we do. It's who we are. It's how we behave. And we need to do more of that in the, Christian, in the Christmas season. So really, the gift I'm asking that we as people at Sturgeon Bay Community Church, followers of Jesus, give each other and one another this Christmas season is the gift of just being Christian during this time, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Our worship team is going to come up to, to sing, to, to play, to close us in our service today, but I've got a couple of questions I want us to be pondering in as we close in prayer. Now, they're not radical. You've probably asked these questions before. But what I'm going to ask really is that today you make this your prayer before your God. And those questions um, are things that are going to be probing. They're going to ask some questions that you need to engage as you're in front of your God. The first first of those questions really is this. um, How obvious is it to the people that you interact with from day to day that you are a Christian? How obvious is that? Look, not an American, a Christian. 
not a good neighbor, a Christian. Not a nice boss or a good employee, Christian. How obvious is it to people around you? And the other question really is one of identity, and it says this, what risk is there in finding your identity in something that can change, can be taken away, or about which you may one day change your own position? You see, our identity is that we, ah, did it again, we are Christians. What fills our heart is the love of Jesus and the identity of being a Jesus follower. If that's who we are, that needs to define everything about us. If anything else is our identity, we run a risk. And the question needs to be asked, what risk is there in finding your identity in politics, financial status, the one who's right, the one who's wrong? It's really important that our identity be in Jesus. So let's ponder those two questions as our worship team plays. You guys just keep going. Let's bring this to God as a prayer. Father, let me ask you to bow your head, to close your eyes. Father God, as, uh, as we come before you this morning, really the question that we need to, to ask is two. The first one, Lord, are we finding our identity in you? Lord, in these moments of silence, this is our question. What risk is there? and finding our own personal meaning and identity in something other than Jesus, especially when we're Christians. God, would you reveal the answer to that in each one of our individual lives in these moments? identity isn't found in our wealth or our accomplishments. Strangely, it's not even found in our families. Lord, our identity is found in you. And we may call ourselves by first and last and middle names and family names. Lord, really what defines us is the fact that we are children of the King. God, you've told us in Scripture that those of us who know you are going to live forever with you. That one day we return to this earth. We spend an eternity living in perfection, in a perfected planet, the way you intended it, in perfect relationship as Adam and Eve were intended. God, that's who we are. People who are full of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, understanding. Lord, this is who we are. Help us to embrace that identity, God. And then secondly, Lord, um, this morning... Really, we've asked this question, um, how obvious is it to the people that we interact with every day that we are Christians? Lord, really our request this morning is this, that we go through the rest of this Christmas season and, and hey, maybe even this whole next year, thinking continually about if people see me right now, are they seeing a Jesus follower? in the midst of argument, in the midst of decision, in the midst of big moments, in the midst of joy and pain, in the midst of challenge. God, in the midst of all of those, would you draw this question into the mind of your children? Am I 
exuding Jesus right now? Will people look at me and think of this moment and realize that there's something different about me? I'm a child of Jesus. God, that's our prayer, and that's the thing we bring before you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and he who has forgiven us far more than we'll ever be asked to forgive anyone else. We pray this in his name.